Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Welcome back to Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Matt Miller here, filling in for Pim Fox. He seemed to be burning the candle at both ends, uh, working way too many hours, and has lost his voice. So I've been called in. It's an honor, actually, for me. My all-time favorite radio show, Bloomberg Surveillance. I happen to be in from Berlin for a couple of days. And uh, Joe Weisenthal joins me here in the studio, uh, anchor of What'd You Miss? Now, I want to get to a very special guest. I'm sure uh, Joe also uh, is incredibly excited to talk to Charles Plosser, former Philadelphia Fed president, um, joining us from Washington, D.C. Charles, thanks so much for your time right now. Let me first ask you about uh, a question I was talking about earlier this morning on my television show, the European Open. Um, why is the Fed, we're losing Stanley Fisher now, and there are questions about who's going to replace Jenny Ellen. Why has the Fed never been completely filled over the last 10 years? It seems like we've never had a full Fed board. Well, it's good to be with you. And, and I think that's a very interesting question. It's a, a difficult question. What I'm concerned about is, it, is that it reflects in part the politicization of the Fed, um, and the fights, the contentious partisan fights over nominees and who gets nominated and what they're, what's expected of them. And um, I think that's very concerning. And it's, it's obviously a huge workload on the remaining three governors. I mean, we knew, we knew pretty much that Stan was not going to stay around. His term ended would have ended in the spring, and he probably wasn't going to stay. So the fact that he's leaving is not a huge surprise. It's happening a few months earlier than it might otherwise have. But um, so that's not a big surprise. It's, it's the concern about who's going who's gonna to be on the board and what's the criteria being used to select them and what's the criteria being used to, to uh, um, you know, uh, confirm them in, in, the, in the political process. And I think that's, that's some troubling aspects to this. Obviously, the sort of questions about who will replace all these vacancies is of utmost importance to investors. But I'm curious about something you said in terms of the workload on the remaining Fed board members. I read today something that uh, Lyle Brainerd now on about seven different committees. <laughs> what is that like for someone on the Fed board in terms of workload to have to carry so much? Well, I, I, the workload goes up tremendously. There are lots of committees that uh, have things to do that go beyond just making monetary policy or regulatory policy. It's a huge institution that where uh, um, the committees and, as you say, the Lael and, and Jay Powell, I mean, all these people now are, used to have workloads of not only their regular workload but committee, two or three committees out there were on, and now they're on five or six and maybe chairing two or three of them. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's almost a distraction in some sense, and mm. therefore makes, that makes it harder for them to focus on policy issues in some, in some cases than it should be. I wonder about uh, the structure, structural changes that we've seen in the economy, not only here, but in Europe as well, around the world. Is it still, um, do you think 2% is still a good inflation target? And is it achievable as far as the core is concerned? Well, I, I think the actual inflation target 
uh, whether it's 2%, uh, 1.5%, 1%, 2.5%, you know, within a range there, the, the 2% is, is not um, – it's not that critical one way or the other. What's critical is having a target and uh, and not manipulating that target or changing it very often. So I think that's what's the important part here. I mean, when we created the 2% inflation target, I was involved in that, and uh, I would have argued for one and a half. I would have been perfectly happy with that. But um, I think it is achievable. I think it is um, uh, is important that in an international context that – Central banks around the world, whether it be the ECB mm-hmm. or the uh, or the Bank of England, that they have something close to the same inflation target. All right. Well, great to get a chance to talk with you who created that. Charles Plosser, former president of the Federal Bank of Philadelphia. This is Bloomberg. We're back here on Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Joe Weisenthal, along with Matt Miller, who's in from from Berlin. Uh, And I want to bring in our next guest, Greg Lemkow. He's co-head of investment banking at Goldman Sachs. Greg, thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks, Joe. Um, In the wake of the election, I think there was a ton of optimism about deregulation and animal spirits and how this would get all kinds of business investment and deals and IPOs and stuff really surging again. I think some of that story in general has faded. Um, But how is the landscape right now, do people feel today, about the deal-making landscape versus, say, December? So it's interesting. We've actually seen – I'd say the, the deal environment is good and building momentum. You know, M&A activity year-to-date is roughly flat. It's up about 1% uh, in terms of overall volumes. And the number of deals is up about 6%. So the, the difference between those two has been actually a lack of really big transactions. You've seen a, I think, you know, the ninth biggest transaction this year. Um, the biggest transaction this year would have been the ninth biggest transaction last year. And so we've, we've mm. seen a lack of confidence to pursue big deals. And that's a, a change in probably out of – line with the expectations we would have had coming into the year. And so, as you said, in, in December, post-election coming into the year, you had reasonable amount of momentum and optimism around uh, an expectation of tax reform, corporate tax reform, uh, which would include some element of cash repatriation, of which there's a lot of U.S. cash overseas that could come back in and be used for M&A, and then a much more friendly regulatory environment than I think we saw under the Obama administration. And so most companies and boards had spent the first couple of months of the year waiting to get clarity on this. Uh, with the expectation it would launch a big wave of M&A, and that clarity just hasn't come. We saw a study out, uh, or we put together a study here at Bloomberg, rather, that showed deregulation could lift bank profit um, by about 20% across the board, with uh, Goldman Sachs about 16%. These are some um, calculations Bloomberg did with analysts uh, and and banks' disclosures and analysts' um, uh, looks at this. Where do you think deregulation would be the most helpful, Greg? I mean, from your business perspective, investment banking, what could a Congress do that would be the best for the bank and for uh, growth? So my guess, I've not seen the study. My guess is that most of the deregulation will impact other parts of the business. It might, may, might free up capital and allow us to deploy it more actively in our investing parts of the business or securities business. Within investment banking, I think the biggest impact that deregulation could happen is more going to be on deal flow. Uh, and the 
greater likelihood of larger transactions, larger consolidating transactions happening, which tends to create you know, clearly M&A and M&A fee opportunities. It creates securities around that um, and financing opportunities. Sometimes it creates divestitures uh, when they can't get all the transactions approved without selling off pieces. So it's the biggest impact on deregulation is likely to drive enhanced deal activity, which can drive revenue in the investment bank side of the business. Um, you know, it's funny because I think like um – Obviously, the sort of traditional expectation is a Republican president comes in, you get this wave of deregulation, as you said, uh, maybe a wave of deals off of that. But this particular Republican president has some uh, ways in which he's different. He calls out companies by name. He There are concerns when it comes to deals that perhaps his own preferences could uh, get in the way of a deal, uh, perhaps being chief among them, the AT&T Time Warner deal, where people are concerned that his own political beliefs could be uh, an issue or that's been a concern at times. How does that uh, play into this? And does that go against or cut it, you know, is it crosswinds against the sort of benefits of deregulation? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge um, around this administration is the lack of predictability. So I think you're right. I think the, the general wave of deregulation should be a positive. I think, again, the expectations at the beginning of the year would there would be less regulation, a more friendly environment around transactions. You know, heck, you had a president who wrote the book called The Art of the Deal. You'd think he'd be friendly towards deal dealmaking. Um, but it's the lack of predictability that has people pausing. Um, we'll see what happens on AT&T Time Warner. I've got every expectation that deal closes, notwithstanding all the rhetoric around it. Right. You know, we heard similar rhetoric around Amazon Whole Foods because the key principal at Amazon also owns the Washington Post, and people said it's not going to be an impact. Now, that deal got approved. And so I think for all the rhetoric uh, that we hear out there, you know, so far the results have been reasonably positive. I think the more results like that we see put on the board, the more people will feel comfortable and confident uh-huh. to go out and do transactions. What do you think about the interest rate environment? How is that affecting your job? I mean, obviously, we're in a fairly low interest rate environment here, and we're looking at negative rates in other major markets that you play in. Does it make it uh, easier to do deals? Uh, yeah, the, the the low interest rate environment definitely helps transaction activity. And you've got an unbelievable amount of capital available just in terms of the aggregate sums for companies to do transactions at historically low levels. And so from a pure mathematical standpoint, almost every transaction that a company looks at that has earnings is going to be accretive to earnings per share just by definition because you can borrow money so cheaply. Well, and when you when you are doing the math for a deal, um, what's your outlook like? I mean, it looks like uh, the Fed isn't going to move as quickly as maybe they thought they were going to. And it even looks like Draghi's hands are kind of tied a little bit by the strength of the euro. When you sit down and do the back of the napkin uh, math on a deal, what, what do you factor in? So I think the expectation will be that we'll have a slow and steadily rising interest rate environment, um, but it'll be foreshadowed well enough and the increases will be uh, will be slow enough and small enough that it's not going to create a rush to activity. I think I think you're still at historically low levels over any longer period of time, uh, and people are able to lock in rates uh, at transaction announcement as their ability to finance things immediately or put hedges in place to lock in interest rates. And so it's it's interesting. I think people are attracted by the low interest rate environment. They're not that anxious about an increase in rates, although everyone expects it. But no one seems to be rushing to do a deal today because. Uh, because rates are going to be higher six months from now or twelve months from now. Let's talk about IPOs because we had some um, we've had some high profile IPOs this year. Most notably, I would say Snap Inc., which has been a real flop since it got on the public market. Uh, Blue Apron, not that big of a deal, but also a flop. And then some of these Silicon Valley so-called unicorns that people are very hyped about. 
you know, losing some momentum or uh, uh, Uber would be chief among them, at least as sort of internal issues. Where do you see the IPO market? People always sort of see it coming back and then push back that date for when the big pipeline opens up. But what do, how do these stories affect, uh, you know, the, the prospects for more IPOs? So it's interesting. I think the expectation is that the IPO market will come back. It has been a lot slower to return. And I think a lot of that has been just the evolution of the private capital market. These companies as as private entities are able to to raise significant amounts of capital and delay and defer the need to go public. You used to have to go public to raise capital. Um, there's lots of capital available. There's even secondary capital available um, for lots of these companies. And so for the most part, they've delayed going public as long as they can to try to build their businesses privately, and they have not been constrained by capital. At some point, that changes. And I think there are a number of, of unicorn companies out there, really big private companies that will be attracted to the public markets that will come over the next one, two, three years, but none of them seem to be in any rush to get public. Is there anything unhealthy or bad about that development that companies can get much bigger and stay private for longer? Or is that just a you know markets change over time? I think it's a markets change over time. I think there's there's lots of smart capital that's, that's chasing uh, those investment opportunities, including many of the public market investors who've crossed over to become private market pre-IPO investors. So I think it's it's healthy. I think the companies would tell you it's given them the flexibility to build their businesses in ways that they might be constrained as a public market quarterly reporting business. And so I think it's been healthy for the growth of companies. Um, but I do think ultimately for the public markets, there's value in being a public company. And these companies all recognize that and will get there. They'll just get there at their own pace. Greg, let me ask, we got a lot of students who listen to Bloomberg Surveillance, I know. And uh, your career has been a strong one. You're part of what a lot of people refer to as kind of the new generation of leaders at Goldman Sachs, um, just promoted to run the investment banking unit. Um, what would you tell a kid who wants to get into banking today? What should he do? Where should he go? Well, if he's if he's talented, if he or she is talented, smart, and hardworking, I tell him to go to Goldman Sachs. No, no, I, I mean, <laughs> you want I should, know, should he be IB? Should he go for trading? You know, I mean, what, what which area of finance? Should so again, I, you know, biased by my own history, but I would say I think there's no better job out of university than the the analyst job, analyst program at an investment bank. I think the skills you learn, the ability to analyze companies, understand businesses, understand balance sheets, see CEOs and boards in action, and understand how companies work. Uh, is second to none. There, it's a it's a heavily work intensive job. My guess is in two years you may get four years of work, um, but the benefits you get out of that are incredible. And the platform it gives you either to continue on a career in investment banking, yeah. or to go anywhere else in the finance world or anywhere else in the corporate world is is fantastic. So I, I, I um you know again biased by my own yep. experience, but I think that program for anyone coming out of university is fantastic. All right, Greg. Well, I appreciate the advice. Appreciate the time, Greg Lemkow, co-head of investment banking at Goldman Sachs. This is Bloomberg. Welcome back to Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Matt Miller. Just uh, dropped in from Berlin for a couple of days and was given the honor of sitting in this seat uh, with Joe Weisenthal, um, for, uh, the co-anchor of What'd You Miss, formerly a colleague of mine. I used to be on that show with him as well. So it's kind of a reunion of sorts, and I'm really glad to be. Uh, I miss you, Matt. I'm re- I miss you too, dude. And uh, I'd say Surveillance has been for years and years my favorite radio show, so it's great to be on here. Uh, right now, I want to bring in a guest, Atul Lele. He is Dell Tech International Group CIO, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about um, – the outlook for investment, I guess, 
I don't want to be callous, but during this kind of national disaster, Atul, you're a specialist on emerging markets. Um, what do you think about what we see going on? Obviously, the human cost is tragic. Uh, what about the financial costs of uh, Harvey, of Irma, and the three other uh, uh, hurricanes that are that are there near your home in the Caribbean? Okay, thanks for having me. So, I mean, we're, we're at Dell Tech, we're global macro investors. So we look at, uh, at not only uh, disasters, as you put it, uh, that, that impact from a temporary perspective, but also we look at where the global cycle is. And as much as uh, these issues are significant, uh, what we're really more focused on as investors is looking at the broader cycle. Uh, and right now, we can see other risks that are uh, you know, not as important from a uh, you know, from a, a, the perspective of the world, but certainly from the perspective of the cycle. That is where global growth momentum is going. We can see that ISM uh, manufacturing data, PMI data from around the world is peaking right now. That should lead to a temporary slowdown uh, in, in growth momentum. We can see that liquidity conditions are clearly changing, not only with the ECB but also with regards to the Fed, and that's really what we're more focused on right now. But do you get a do you get a significant boost in activity after a big storm or a couple of big storms? We know that people go and stock up on stuff that got destroyed, and then that growth is kind of taken up later. Um, what about the kind of disasters that we're seeing now? Yeah, so you, uh, typically what you do see is a, uh, a sharp increase in activity, but that's really commensurate with the sharp decrease that you see in activity uh, when such events occur. Uh, and so we are clearly seeing a sharp decrease in activity uh, on the back of some of the recent uh, issues that we've seen. So with regards to Hurricane Harvey, we've seen it happen. Uh, with regards to Irma, you're likewise going to see a sharp decrease in activity. So yes, there's a sharp increase on the other side of it, um, but we certainly don't take the view that, oh, look, this is going to be great for economic activity, but because there's just no way at all to characterise that it would be great for economic activity, um, any natural disaster. Atul, let's talk about the uh, global macro landscape. You mentioned some signs that momentum you know, may be fading a little bit based on the PMIs, that the financial conditions might be uh, make, becoming a little less favorable. What about sort of political and geopolitical headline risk? So far, you know, we get these small blips, but they tend not to last very much in markets, markets more focused on the economic conditions. What, could we have a period where suddenly people really do care about politics or really do care about the situation with North Korea to the point where it affects markets? That's a, that's a really great question because what we've been seeing uh, in recent months and certainly since last November is uh, policy uncertainty. And there's a measure of policy uncertainty that we use. Uh, policy uncertainty not only in the US but also around the world has been declining quite significantly. Uh, and that's consistent typically with a rise in risk assets, which is what we've seen mm. as well. Uh, but we are in a period now that is uh, very, very calm as far as policy uncertainty is concerned, uh, certainly in the context of some of the event risks that we have coming up with regards to the US uh, debt situation, the event risks we have in Europe with regards to Brexit as well. So we are expecting that policy uncertainty is going to rise. But taking a step back and looking at things strategically, so from a three to five year perspective, this economic recovery and expansion has been driven almost entirely by the private sector. 
uh, uh, more than almost any time in history, uh, we're just not really that reliant on the public sector. Uh, and we haven't been reliant on the public sector for the better part of seven or eight years uh, in the US or indeed globally. And we measure that by looking at the amount of fiscal stimulus that's been added into economies, not only in the US, but again, globally. So uh, from a shorter term context, I entirely agree uh, with, with uh, what you're saying, which is that we are in this unusual lull at the moment in terms of policy uncertainty, and we are expecting that to pick up as we move into the end of the year, and that has the potential to cause friction and volatility in markets. But from a medium to longer term perspective, this is a private sector-driven recovery, so what we're seeing in global growth momentum, global liquidity conditions will ultimately mm. matter more. From an EM specific context, we're fine. You know, obviously, this has been a tremendous year for EM after several years of uh, underperformance. Is the has the nature of these economies changed since the last time that EMs were outperforming globally, such that they're more robust, say, less dependent on U.S. or Chinese growth, and have more positive domestic stories? Uh, look, that's uh, the, the simple answer is yes, uh, things have changed. But with emerging markets, it's very much an idiosyncratic story, mm. as in certain economies have successfully restructured their economies. Certain economies have become less reliant on US dollar liquidity and US dollar capital inflows to fund themselves. Uh, but then there's other economies which simply haven't undertaken those very difficult restructuring uh, steps. So uh, the, the, the simple answer again is, is yes, we are seeing a, a more healthy healthy emerging market environment, courtesy of the fact that global growth's picked up and there are leverage play on that, courtesy of the fact that liquidity conditions are quite supportive and they benefit from that. Um, but you know, it really is an idiosyncratic argument as to whether emerging markets has improved or not. You talk about the amount of growth that's driven by private investment. Um, I automatically think of how much debt uh, the world central banks are holding and the fact that they seem to be, at least some of them, about to start to unravel those holdings. Um, how does that affect your investment outlook? Yeah, look, that's a great point. It's a central tenet to our investment outlook. So at Deltec, when we manage money, we look at the interrelationship between global economic growth, global liquidity conditions or money supply, and global asset prices. And so what you're discussing is really hitting very hard at that second point, which is global liquidity conditions. As liquidity is withdrawn from markets and from economies, uh, you start to see uh, you know, really carry trade sensitive assets, whether it's emerging markets, commodities, high yield credit, underperform. So from an investment perspective, uh, those changes that we're seeing in central bank policy have a huge impact uh, on carry trade sensitive assets, which is why we're positioning right now towards more growth sensitive productivity growth sensitive assets as opposed to liquidity growth and interest rate sensitive assets. So if markets not, I mean, obviously, everyone's trying to figure out the exact timing of, say, the Fed's uh, balance sheet wind down, whether it's this year or early next year, not, not totally clear. Uh, are you saying, would you argue that uh, whenever it is that it hasn't fully been discounted, the ramifications of what that will mean? Well, it, it, it hasn't been fully discounted because there's still a lot of uncertainty as to, mm. as to not only the Fed's next move, but the moves beyond that. Right. And there's a lot of things that play into US dollar liquidity conditions beyond the Fed because money supply isn't only driven by the Fed. It's also, and US dollar liquidity isn't only driven by the Fed. It's also driven by the US trade deficit. It's also driven by the amount of credit creation or the money multiplier existing in the banking system. Uh, and so the Fed is a really important element and clearly the biggest driver. Uh, but it's these other elements that we're watching very closely as well. 
The dollar uh, obviously has gotten crushed of late. In fact, I'm just pulling up the index real quick to see. I think if we're down again today on the Bloomberg Dollar Index, it'll be the first time it's fallen for seven consecutive days since 2011. Wow. How does that play into what you uh, what you do around the world? Because um, it seems against any currency, the dollar's down, but there are some currencies that have done uh, strikingly well, um, like the euro. Yeah, so it, it plays in a lot. Uh, as global macro investors, we look across uh, all major asset classes and all asset types. And so it plays into the extent of how much that weakness in the US dollar uh, benefits carry trade sensitive assets, emerging markets, commodities, high yield credit. But it also plays into our security selection in terms of looking at those companies, those uh, sectors that are beneficiaries of a weaker US dollar. Uh, and also looking at global flows. I mean, there's certain markets uh, where you've just seen flows out of, such as Europe, because of some of the strength that you've seen in the euro, which is starting to weigh on their domestic economic conditions. So it weighs on not only our investment and asset allocation decisions, but also our outlook for economic growth. So real quickly, from a global perspective, what region is most interesting to you right now? To us, uh, number one region is Japan. It's the, mm. it's it's uh, it's a leveraged play on global industrial production growth. It's deeply undervalued relative to the U.S. and relative to its own history. Uh, it's a beneficiary of the fact that oil's closer to fifty dollars a barrel than one hundred and twenty dollars a barrel. It, it has a high oil imports as a percentage of GDP. Uh, and longer term, we're very focused on uh, this idea that productivity growth should come through. And Japan's been doing that and automating since uh, their demographic bubble burst in nineteen ninety. So. They're ahead of the curve on that front. All right. Atulele, Dell Tech International Group CIO. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen, David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.